0: That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam Leventer. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. So interesting fact, about one in nine earn a living in sales, yet most enter the workforce without any kind of sales training at all. So with that in mind, we are going back into the topic of sales with my guest, Mike Bosworth, who is a seasoned author, speaker, and thought leader within the field. He's designed several sales training programs for a number of Fortune 500 companies. And in this episode, we hit on a fundamental problem in the world of sales, what Mike calls product-based selling. We also talk about the power of stories and use cases in a sales context, what signals to look for to know whether a prospective buyer is warming up to your offering, the 90-second pitch, how to relax buyer skepticism, and what it means when you hear a prospect drop the F-bomb. So without delay, here again is the sales guru himself, Mike Bosworth. Take me back to the 70s and what the world was like then in the world of selling.
1: Well, it it was very, very different back then, when I first went into sales for Xerox Computer Services, we co-called, and by co-calling back then, we were smokestacking. We were going into an industrial park. Our marketing people would give us a – we were selling a manufacturing company, so they'd give us a a listing of all the manufacturing companies in our territory – and we'd find them on the Thomas Brothers maps, and we'd walk in and, and cold call. And back then, it was pretty amazing the number of people came out. I would go out and say, I was 28 years old, and I'd go into a manufacturing company, and I'd say, my, my, my name's Mike Bosworth, I'm with Xerox Computer Services, and I'd like to speak with your materials manager. And 80% of the time, the materials manager would end up coming out. And it wasn't just my mojo. It was that back then, the only way somebody who's been out of college 20 years and is working for a $100 million manufacturing company, the only way he can learn anything new about any new cool technology that's coming down the road for manufacturing is to see salespeople from IBM and Xerox and Honeywell, et cetera. So back then, the salespeople had information power. Buyers might not have liked them, but they put up with their presentations and stuff because they were curious about new technology. So today, the world's completely different from that. As as we all know, the buyers can learn pretty much everything they need to learn about a potential solution before they ever talk to a salesperson.
0: Yeah, that's the age of the Internet. I mean, the customer now knows everything about the product. The information is already in the customer's hands when they're thinking about buying something. Yep. Almost like the buyer's got this advantage over the seller that they never had back then.
1: Well, I hate the word advantage because, to me, selling should be a win-win or no deal. I, I really signed up for that when I went through the Stephen Covey training years ago, the win-win or no deal. Mm-hmm. And so the word advantage, I don't know, it bothers me. I think in each time, you know, the buyer and the seller, I don't... The buying certainly is different now than it was in the seventies, but in either case, I think it's pretty easy for the buyer and seller to come up with a win-win or no deal.
0: So in the seventies, there was somewhat of a barrier in terms of teaching people how to connect with others on a more personal level, right? The approach to selling was a little different back then.
1: The, the barrier was the knowledge that my parent company, Xerox Corporation, put on me when I became a rookie sales trainer in 1976. I went to the Xerox PSS instructor school to learn how to teach that course. And I learned how to sell bulldozers and hair dryers and multiple ways of closing and handling objections and all that. And I went kind of, yuck, that's not the way I sell. And so I went back to my management, Xerox Computer Services, and said, you know, if that's the course you want taught, find yourself another resource because I, I can't teach that. I didn't do it. I don't believe it. It doesn't feel right to me. And that's when, at Xerox Computer Services, we started our internal project to design our own sales methodology, and we called it consultative selling. But the one thing that big Xerox pounded into my brain and this stuck with me for 32 years, was they said, Mike, we can teach salespeople to be more competent. We can teach them to be better speakers, better presenters, write better letters, teach them closing techniques, negotiating techniques, etc. But we can't teach connection. We can't teach rapport. It was first 2008 I came to the realization that the primary difference between top 20% salespeople and bottom 80% salespeople is not their IQ. It's not the number of hours they work. It's not who knows the product the best. It's the people who form the best emotional connections and build trust easily and quickly with strangers. Those are the superstars.
0: How, do, how does the top percentile of performers... Build trust. Like what are some of the hmm. strategies and tactics that you see that are successful?
1: They almost have no strategies and tactics whatsoever, Adam. They do it intuitively. Hmm. And that, that's what causes such chaos when they then get promoted by their companies where their companies are hoping that these phenomenally talented salespeople can teach other salespeople to sell just as good as they can if they promote them.
0: It's fascinating stuff. So the let let's fast forward a little bit from the late seventies to nineteen ninety-four. Microsoft Solutions hires you to help them sell more copies of Microsoft Office. So yes. in during that experience, what did you discover?
1: The innovators and early adopters, the first thirteen percent of the market for any new product, they buy so differently that marketing people get seduced by the way the early market buys and think the rest of the market's gonna buy that way. And the chasm is when that flips. Okay, so if
0: the early adopters are buying differently than the majority of the market, they fall into this chasm, what happens as a result?
1: Well, what happens is they run out of the way the early market buys is they look at that new technology and they go, son of a gun, I've been waiting and hoping somebody would come out with something like that. I know exactly how I'm going to use it. And they are able to form their own buying vision. They're able to be able to see in their own brain how they would be able to use that new product or technology to solve a problem or achieve a goal. And so they buy But that's such a small minority of the whole market for any new technology. The majority of the market, starting with the early majority, they won't buy until they understand why they need it and how they're going to use it. So in 1994, Microsoft had run out of early market buyers for office. Now they realize that the majority of the people they wanted to sell to in small businesses didn't know why they needed it or how they would use it. And so they hired me and my team to go out and retroactively interview their early market buyers in small businesses, doctor's offices, construction companies, real estate offices, etc. And we'd go out and say to them, would you show us how you're using Microsoft Office to run your business? And they'd show us. We're, we're analyzing this and, we, you know, we're making better profit decisions. We're collecting cash faster, da-da-da-da-da. And then we'd say, well, how did it show us how you did that same function before you had Microsoft Office. And so we went out and wrote the before and after stories for specific use cases of Office.
0: Is the use case selling strategy, do you think, still as effective today as it was back then?
1: You know what, Adam, it's always been extremely effective, but so few people do it. They start off by demoing that technology. They do a white paper, they go to trade shows, and they lead with the product. And the vast majority of information technology product companies over the past 40 years, when they first hire salespeople, the first thing they send them to is product school. They teach them how to demo the product. They teach them every feature and function of that product. But that knowledge doesn't make them better salespeople. It actually makes them worse worse salespeople. Because now, what are they going to do? They're going to go out and say, do you want to see a demo? Can I show you a presentation of our product? They lead with product. Use case selling says that the salespeople are patient enough to be able to diagnose does this person have a problem a potential problem a potential goal a potential need that i can see him or her solving because i have superior knowledge of my product can i tell them a story about another real estate agent or another materials manager or another controller who used to do it an old way and now they do it this way in other words would they respond if I I offered them a peer story? And most people will not turn down a peer story.
0: You know, it's so interesting. I mean, I, I wonder what the reason is for neglecting this approach from the company level. When they're training sales executives and they're looking for more effective ways to sell in order to boost conversions or sell more products or whatever, and they're leading with the product first as you pointed out.
1: Right, yeah.
0: What why are they doing it? Like what what is it that they're missing? Is it simply that they think that you know this is this is a training methodology that we could just scale and we can teach this to thousands of employees and it's very difficult to teach storytelling or is it something else?
1: Product marketing is really is really the problem here. And that's why we're we're trying to convert product marketing departments into use case product, use case selling marketing units, because the difficulty is, though, is their power is their knowledge of the product. They don't have knowledge of the customer. And mm-hmm. so the, the real paradigm shift is thinking about our product in ways our customer could use it Rather than thinking about our product, about how cool it is and how many features it has and how deep it is and how well it integrates and all that stuff. Stop thinking about your product as a noun and think about it as a verb. In other words, think about how your customer would use it, not what it is. You can tell that salespeople have been mistrained if you go out on a call And you hear the salesperson starting to say, our solution will do this, and our solution will do that. That is an indicator that they were taught their product as a noun by their product marketing department. In class, they would say, it will do this, and it will do that. And then when they go out on sales calls, they change the word it to our solution. Our solution will do this, and our solution will do that. And that way of selling is rapidly becoming extinct because buyers are really turned off by it now.
0: So what do the effective salespeople lead with? Like what are some examples of, you know if you're if you're just lending an ear to a conference call and there's a buyer and a seller on the line, how do you know that the seller is really savvy?
1: I would know that the seller is really savvy by their patience, by their ability to just build some connection and trust before they even get into their product. You know there's the patience to hold off the diagnose and prescribe and whole sales call thing until they've first got some connecting point with that person or they've got some connection and trust. That's what the top 20% do intuitively, that the bottom 80% skip because they don't know how to do it. The bottom 80% dive into their sales process prematurely. Yeah,
0: that's interesting. I wasn't going to ask you some strategies until later on the phone call, but because you brought this up, let's dive into this one first. How would a salesperson say who's trying to improve and who's in that bottom 80% relax a buyer's skepticism in order to build trust and form a connection earlier on in the prospecting phase?
1: It's a great question. And that's what we have created a framework for to teach an an engineer salesperson, a salesperson who majored in accounting, someone who's really, really smart, but maybe not that good at connecting. And it's, by the way, it's usually a family of origin issue more than anything else. But what we do is we first have to get them to recognize that they have two types of potential buyers, and you start off with them very differently. If you're starting off with a buyer who's already in a buy cycle where they're already saying, We are looking to buy a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, that's one situation. The other situation is where you've been taught. Who should be looking for your product in your market, or your marketing department is so integrated with your selling side that they're actually doing demand creation for targeted buyer personas, offering them a potential use case story about one of their peers. So, in other words, if the marketing, if the demand creation is started by the tactical marketing department because they're aligned with the way people sell, now really magical things happen. But if, if if it was just me back in my territory at Xerox, I have nobody actively looking for my new MRP system because it was first generation. So everybody I call on isn't looking, but I think they should be looking. So that cell cycle or cell buy cycle is different. Which one do you want to talk about first?
0: That one's probably more relevant because you did mention earlier on in the call You know, showing someone why they need it and how they're going to use it, even when they may not know in advance.
1: Exactly, And the tool for that is a story, a 90 second maximum customer. We call it a customer hero story. But what it really is, it's a customer use case story. Oh, you're a marketing director. Can I share a quick story with you about another marketing director we're working with right now? What marketing director would turn down that story?
0: 100%. You know what's so interesting about that? I almost think about when we, you know, nobody wants unsolicited advice from somebody. You're right. Right. And, right. And so, like, if I say to somebody, you know, a quick example, so... I'm having trouble managing my accounts receivable and payable and I'm looking for some new slick software. Can you guys, you know, I'm putting this email out to a few colleagues. Can you guys suggest some accounting software that you like that's been effective for you? And somebody writes me back and says like, you should use FreshBooks. Like why aren't you using FreshBooks yet? Like I, I would respond differently to that email than I would. If somebody called me and said, you know, in my experience, what happened to me was, you know, I had, bookkeeping that was all messed up. I hired a part-time bookkeeper. Uh, I was using QuickBooks and then I moved to FreshBooks or whatever. And this was my experience. And then they kind of got yeah. into a story. like That's what I would respond to.
1: As a buyer. And But how many salespeople are leading that way? Very few. And mm-hmm. if you think about it, most of the people out there are not actively looking for what you sell, even though many of them, in your opinion, should be looking, right? So the place to play, if you're a smart salesperson, is to initiate new buy cycles with people who aren't looking yet, but should be looking, because if you get them to look, you get to be column A, and you get the right to requirement. Yes, they're still going to have to put it out for bid, but you've got the credibility, the trust in the beginning, and you're in essence writing the specification for the RFP to favor what you sell.
0: How do you know whether a prospect is warming up to you during this process? Like, oh, Are there some clues question. that someone can look for in the selling process early on?
1: There certainly are, and we call them public displays of trust, and I'm trying to find a, I got a list of them here someplace <laughs> but uh, public dis- displays of trust in other words is the buyer demonstrating by his or her behavior with your salesperson that they're increasing their level of trust with your salesperson like the the first big public display of trust is can you get a a stranger After just a short period of time, ideally a 90-second story, can you get a stranger to admit to you that they, too, are having a problem? I mean, how many of us admit problems to people who cold-call us at home at night?
0: Yeah, I mean, I'd say most people are quite uncomfortable with that.
1: Yeah, and they try and get them off. So the fact that your buyer says, well, you know, Adam, I really am having a problem collecting cash. You know, he had because you might have told him a story about another controller who used to have trouble collecting cash and he needed a way to do A, B and C. And our software gave it to him. And now he's collecting it, you know, in 32 days instead of 62 days. But enough about me. What's going on here? Odds are that use case story told well, built well, will get him to say, you know, I'm struggling with that, too. That's a huge public display of trust to a salesperson. Hmm. And then, you know, then if they'll go deeper and start mm-hmm. talking about how it's impacting other people in the company, another public display of trust is when a buyer starts talking about the kids they coach or their, you know, the soccer team and stuff, where they're now sharing personal information and. You know, I'll tell you a funny one. Back when I was 28 years old selling to 48-year-old manufacturing executives, and it was a long sell cycle, you know, 60, 90, 120 days, multiple calls, and two or three calls in, if the senior person would drop an F-bomb in front of me, I knew, I said, I've got this guy. He just showed me. (laughs) He trusts me because he will now use the F-word in front of an outside salesperson who's 20 years younger.
0: This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta, tomorrow you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. Okay, so I want to shift gears into some more, I guess, macro fun stuff related to sales. Okay. So recently I read Dan Pink's book, To Sell is Human, I think it's called. I forget yep. the title. I believe that's yep. it. The it premise is. is really that everyone is in sales, whether it's convincing your boss that you deserve a raise, you want to, you're sending an email in an attempt to receive a certain type of response. You're giving an opinion at a meeting, cajoling kids at dinner, whatever. Like, we're all in sales. Like, I buy buy into this theory.
1: Yeah, the common denominators, we're all trying to influence other human beings.
0: So given that, what you just said, Mike, why do you think people still have such a negative perception of sales or salespeople? I mean, we all like to buy things. Where does the negativity come from here?
1: I think historical experiences. I mean, I ask my audience how many of you can personally think of an a previous experience with a salesperson where you felt pushed, offered opinions you didn't ask for and you know and tried to manipulate and pressure how many of you felt that from a salesperson and almost every hand in every audience goes up? so we all kind of have a little PTSD from previous encounters with really pushy old-school salespeople. Mm -hmm. And so that causes strangers to be more wary if you're a salesperson than something else. One example, you know, my uh, solution selling methodology, it was based on pre-written, really smart discovery questions written by the smartest people in the world that we give salespeople to ask, right? So we We figure like doctors, you know, if you go in and meet a doctor you've never met before, how does that doctor build trust with you? Do they show you the diplomas on their wall from Columbia Medical School or do they start asking you really intelligent questions you're capable of answering where you say in your own brain, God, this guy really knows his stuff? Yeah, it's the latter, of course that was the whole premise behind solution selling let's build our salesperson's credibility by pre-writing really smart questions for them the problem was for the bottom eighty percent is they went to those really smart questions too soon they went to those really smart questions before they took the time to emotionally connect to come up with some connecting points some common ground some. You know, start to build some trust and connection before they take those questions out. And it took me a long time to realize it, but the number one complaint I got from the vice president of sales over 20 years of solution selling was Mike, the top 20% love solution selling, the bottom 80% quit using it within two weeks of the workshop. Why? Why? It took me till 2008 to realize that they were going to those questions too soon. And what happens when you go out and start asking those questions before the buyer has decided to share their pain with you? In other words, if you start asking invasive questions before your buyer trusts you enough to share a problem with you, they're going to start putting pushing their hands up figuratively and they'd say, whoa, you don't know me well enough to ask me all those questions. And that's why the bottom 80% quit using it after two weeks because they went out and tried it, but every time they tried it, the buyer pushed them away. They didn't really understand that those were questions that they will only answer from somebody they trust.
0: Interesting that you say that, and you also mentioned regarding this top 20%. A little bit earlier on around around this being a family of origin thing what did you mean by that
1: well i didn't have a good family of origin and to show the self-esteem i had developed in my family of origin when i was 18 years old and a freshman at mount san antonio junior college i took a speech class that i had to drop out of because i was going into the bathroom throwing up before i with the thought of having to get up in front of the room and talk And now I make my living doing it. But there's a certain percentage of kids that grew up where the family had dinner every night together around the table. They turned off the TV and they'd go around that table and say, so what was the funniest thing that happened to you today? Or what's going on in school where the parents were artful and to not ask closed in questions to their kids, you know, where there's one word answers. Mm-hmm. In other words, where they had family conversations and everybody was treated as a family member and they could throw in an opinion and dad and mom wouldn't try to shove their opinions down the throat of the kids. And they, they just had a family of origin advantage. And people like that just go out and they have this comfort with strangers and they end up being able to connect and build trust intuitively. But because they do it intuitively, they can't teach anybody else what they do.
0: That's so interesting. I forget where I saw this, but somebody was mentioning that you could kind of train yourself to get more comfortable in that situation if you didn't come from a family like that. And one of the techniques was to say at the next networking event that you're at or a wedding or whatever, go up to a stranger and start a conversation and just continue to ask them questions about them. And, you know, don't interrupt, don't start telling your own story or whatever, just be a listener and stay engaged and be present. And it's amazing what that simple exercise can do for somebody.
1: It really is. And the, and the two key words in that exercise are sincere curiosity as long as you can continue to develop to demonstrate sincere curiosity to this stranger, they are going to think you're the most fascinating person they've ever met.
0: Yeah. And it's a way to establish likability as well. Right. Like the people just, you know, they don't remember really what you guys were talking about. They say, oh, wow, that guy, Mike, was so nice, you know, and you're just asking questions for the entire time.
1: So we're, that's why we're trying to give the salespeople here's the buy cycle people go through. In 10 seconds, the first step in a buy cycle is curiosity. That's why we offer them a peer story in 10 seconds. Oh, you're a CMO. Can I share another a story with another about another CMO I'm working with? Sure. Now I've got a maximum of 90 seconds to create a use case, customer hero story. And at the end of that customer hero story, I'm going to say enough about me, what's going on around here. And if that story created enough connection and trust and credibility that that person now admits a problem, now I can take out my directed questions and ask that person really smart questions with sincere curiosity and maybe tend their story for an hour.
0: So in the digital age, how does a salesperson tell a story or as you would put it, tend a story from somebody else in today's social media world when a, you've got say only 140 characters or so to do it in, or you've got a short email to do it in and b humans just have a shorter attention span, shorter attention spans than ever, thanks to smartphones, et cetera. So what would you
1: advise? Well, we're not trying, we don't, we haven't really figured out the power of the story as much when it's sent on an email or if it's on a website. We are trying to teach people to build conversational sales-ready stories where they're looking somebody in the eye. And even though we give them a maximum of 90 seconds, we prefer that they do them in 60 seconds. And those stories have a format. They have a setting, They have a struggle, a complication. They have a hero. They have the turning point, the vision of the hero. They have the resolution. They have a moral. So in other words, we have different elements to a story attached to different colored cards, and we actually use index cards, and we have them handwrite two or three talking points for each card, and then they have to actually tell the story you know looking at a person and having a conversation the worst thing we can do for salespeople is write out word-for-word stories that they're supposed to memorize it's like a newscaster on a teleprompter you can tell when they're on a teleprompter they just lose their ability to emotionally connect with the audience they're robotic so the real art to this is giving people a framework for giving information and collecting the information back from the other person in the same color framework.
0: Is this the Hollywood movie approach?
1: Well, it kind of is, except in a Hollywood movie, they have an hour and a half to two hours to tell a story, and we have 60 to 90 seconds. So... it's the same story arc, same story arc. Yeah, that's very cool. Think about the time, you know, some people say, oh, 60 to 90 seconds, that isn't enough, but... And i like to ask people, do you know how long Lincoln's Gettysburg address was? And most people don't. And mm-hmm. I was shocked that it was two minutes and two seconds. Wow. So when people resist the 60 to 90 second limits we try and put on them, we tell them that. And I've got a friend who's a newscaster whose producer will not take any story by him until he's got it down under 90 seconds. He won't even look at it.
0: That's interesting. I mean... So I just, I want to continue on the social media, digital age stuff for a sec. So based on what you're saying, is there a way to storytell and build trust and earn, say, public displays of trust, which you mentioned earlier, through
1: new age technology? If I can teach a salesperson to deliver a really good customer use case story in 60 seconds, then let's video that person telling that story. Because now, I mean, I could take that short video and I could go on Facebook marketing and I can target left-handed people who are shorter than five foot eight, who don't own guns in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I mean, you can target anybody you want. Yep. Mm -hmm. So if you could create these Short 60 second use case stories, and then use social to target those little videos to the people who are the same, you know, who have pure curiosity and mine that pure curiosity using digital technology. But the key would be really good stories. They, the content would have to be killer or it would die.
0: Got it. The. Sticking on the email stuff for a sec, so you mentioned the authenticity or the lack of authenticity as it relates to the the news anchor reading off a teleprompter. In today's digital world, let's just use CRM as an example. So, you know, every organization's sales department thinks they need to have a robust CRM and an email drip campaign. They set up sequencing within emails. They send out automated emails that are just bombarding prospects with information. It's usually product as solution focused, right? Which is not what you're advocating for. Everybody can kind of sniff this bullshit out for lack of a better term. So what do you suggest? And is there a role for the telephone?
1: You betcha. You betcha. We are now teaching salespeople to do a 20 second cold call phone script and assuming that 98% of the time they're gonna, that script is going to go right to their voicemail. So I'm a total believer in leaving a maximum 20-second voicemail that creates curiosity mm-hmm. and gives them an opportunity to respond and, and also says, and if I don't hear from you, I'll try you again at 2 p.m. on Thursday and give a specific date and time. We found that if it's offering a pure story, you know, if I said, Adam, this is Mike Bosworth calling you. You and I don't know each other, but maybe I make it warm. But, you know, Gerhard Schfantner told me that you might be interested in what I do. I'd like to share a story with you about another person who has a, a podcast mm-hmm. and leave it that short on in, in 20 seconds as a voicemail. Hugely successful.
0: I could totally but then you better have that. a good
1: story. You better have a good story in your pocket for when you do connect with that person.
0: Yeah, no, I could totally see that. Quickly, I know we're bumping up on time. A few last questions I want to ask you about. So, I read an interesting stat online. Something like four thousand universities in the states, about hundred in Canada, or so. So forty-one hundred college, university, institutions in North America, less than 200 have sales programs, let alone a sales course. yet, so grown. <laughs> yet, the, yet, yet the vast majority of the workforce, something like one in nine, earn a living in sales. But surprisingly, they're working in sales without any kind of training whatsoever. What's going on here at the education level?
1: Well, the most simple answer is Selling is a skill. It's not an academic subject. Mm-hmm. And academia loves academic subjects. And, you know, how many business professors have you ever met that you think would be a star sales, star B2B salesperson, you know, working for a high-tech company?
0: I don't know. It's, it's a very small amount.
1: Very small amount. So how can we... One, I mean, I wish... Well, I've got some potential solutions, but I wish that we could teach these college professors to be good sales trainers. But you can't really teach somebody to do something that you can't do yourself if it's a skill. You can give them knowledge. You can give them an academic course. You can give them bubble tests. But, I mean, it's like when you're a teenager learning to drive a stick shift car. You can't learn that from a lecture. I don't know what to do about the college and university thing other than, I mean, we know how, we, we have a track for the underemployed seeking jobs in our open workshops where we, we in our two and a half day workshop. If, if you're not in B2B sales yet, we've got a track for helping you get your first sales job or first job because that interview is a huge sales call. If you think about it. Yep.
0: Okay, looking ahead into the future of sales, humans are emotional. I think we've established that. Not sure, you know, we've got all of the rhetoric around artificial intelligence and big data. Yep. Where do you see that impacting the future of sales jobs? You know, my own personal opinion is I'm not sure. Big data and AI can actually predict emotional charges that most of us are driven by. I'm not 100% convinced, perhaps, but what do you think?
1: Even if they were able to predict it, how do you teach a journeyman salesperson to go out and have an interaction with that person and actually stimulate that bicycle? I think we're a long ways from replacing human connection and trust.
0: Yeah, I think that's good. That's good last words. I just want to I know we we've touched on almost all your books. I want to just give the listeners the quick overview of your best-selling book Solution Selling, Creating Buyers in Difficult Selling Markets, Highly Recommended, Customer-Centric Selling which you also co-authored and the newest book What Great Sales People Do: The Science of Selling Through Emotional Connection and the Power of Story. Where else can people find out more about you, Mike?
1: The easiest thing is mikebosworth.com, or connect with me on LinkedIn.
0: And you also mentioned the workshops. Where can people find out more information about those?
1: Well, my next public workshop is September 12 through 14 in Minneapolis, and we haven't even posted the brochure for it yet. But if you're interested in that date, contact me and I'll give you the details.
0: There you go. Well, Mike, congratulations on all of your success, the books, the workshops, and all that you've done in your career as it relates to sales. This has been a real pleasure talking to you today.
1: Well, it's been pleasure talking to you, Adam. I think you've got a future in interviewing, and I think there's some <laughs> job openings. I think Charlie Rose kind of gave his job up. <laughs> and, uh... <laughs> yeah.
0: Okay. Well, I'll take that as a compliment. Yeah. I appreciate it, Mike. We'll let you go. Okay. Have a great day. E2 is brought to listeners in part by ScriberBase. Visit ScriberBase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time. Make today count with whatever it is you're working on.
1: Hi, I'm Mark. And I'm Peter. We're the founders of Electrocast Media, bringing you great podcasts like Nightmare Road Stories, Tech Talk Revolution, and Bodacious Minds. Electrocast networks include Ruby for female empowerment, The Best Business Network, and GPN for geopolitics. We built this company to create community and amplify diverse voices, and we really appreciate your support. So keep listening to Electric Hat Podcasts and hear the culture. Electric acid. Electric podcasts.
0: Welcome to the Candle Power Hour.